Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 99E. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Happy NorCal live show-ish thing, Courtney. Happy NorCal live show. This is the first time we're recording at my house. Yeah. We were in a car for 12 hours yesterday, and I know a few people were like, oh, are you guys going to record an NCR road trip podcast? And no, not because we didn't want to, but because... Our poor friend Masaki Doi, our car, our Toyota Yaris, which Ben, you should explain how that came about, but it, she's not so much windproof. It was pretty noisy in the car, basically, on the freeway. You could hear every bump, and it wasn't going to make for good audio. You guys were going to hate it. So, yeah, I mean, not that we haven't had bad audio before, but yeah, Misaki was a, our car, basically, when, I, when we got to our car, I think I mentioned it in my rant at the last show. You did. Was Is this tiny Toyota Yaris, and it's really really small and really undersized doesn't really have a front or a back to it it's just sort of four seats and four wheels it's like a cock it's like a like a like a space shuttle cockpit that had been injected or ejected out of the air yeah pretty much or like one of those space shuttle like spaceship Pods. like landing like an apollo 11 yeah. landing pod type thing yeah yeah so anyway decided that it was japanese tiny tried really hard and we get double bageled by a porsche yeah so misaki doi easy and we had a little photo of misaki on the dashboard, and she guided us safely through some treacherous territory. So I know we were on happy. PCH, and she actually handled well. And After I, dark. It, it has to be said that Ben really hated this car when we first got it. Like he ranted <laughs> about it, obviously, in the last episode. He fell in love. I did. I'm gonna have a special. When I, next time I see Misaki Doi, I'll be like, "Oh hi!" I should be like, "Why are you thinking that you should? I should know who you are?" But we go way back now. Way back, PCH baby. So that's. What happened since Indian Wells, but we're going to talk about Indian Wells in specific. Uh, Serena withdrawing, Novak and Simona Halep both winning titles and how they got there. And then we're going to look ahead to Miami and also look at another person who's done some not so savory things in South Florida, namely Wayne Odesnik and his 14 year suspension from the tour, uh, which surprised no one and why it surprised no one and what that says about everything. So, ready to go. Courtney, how you say ready to go in Northern California? Is there some regional dialect funness? Let's go. Let's hella go or something. <laughs> what? Right? That's how you talk. That's, that's just a really improper use of hella. This episode's going to be hella rad. We're going to lay it down. It's going to be awesome. And uh, yeah, let's roll. All right. Let's start with Serena withdrawing because that was the most memorable thing that happened in the second half of Indian Wells. After her big comeback, Serena withdrew. <laughs> there started to be rumors circulating that something was up with Serena during the first semifinal of the women's tournament, which was on Friday night. And then it came out that Serena was withdrawing very shortly before her <laughs> semifinal in Indian Wells with a right knee injury. And the deja vu and of this was spectacular. Serena, obviously, as everyone knows, in 2001, Venus withdrew shortly before their scheduled semifinal with knee tendonitis. Courtney, what were your thoughts when you heard this was happening? Because I think a lot of people were like, a little jaw dropped. Yeah, we were all on the balcony, um, the media seats at the BMP Paribas Open, and watching Yelena Yankovic and Sabina Lisicki do what they were doing uh, over the course of three sets. And slowly news started to trickle in that there might be 
uh, a withdrawal from Serena. I think that all of us kind of initially kind of dismissed it. Just a few tweets that we saw, it was like, okay. Patrick McEnroe mentioned yeah, something on ESPN. That exactly. was the first thing I heard about it. So we were like, no, no way, no. And then uh, about within probably about five minutes of, of Patrick McEnroe saying something, I think the BNP Paribas Open uh, account confirmed it. Yeah, they tweeted at the end of the second set of Yankovic Lissicki. They were waiting. Yeah, so that was uh, pretty shocking. And yeah, I mean, it was just the deja vu. And I think that for myself and I know talking to a few other writers in the room, there was this kind of general sense of like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Like, how is this crowd going to react? I mean, it's flashbacks all over again. It's deja vu. It's wondering... You know, how is the tournament going to handle it? How is Serena going to handle it? How are the fans going to handle it? All these sorts of things. And so um, in the end, I think it was handled perfectly. I mean, I don't think that it could have been handled any better. There are a lot of different questions as to, you know, why was the announcement never formally made? There was The words Serena Williams is, has pulled out. Of, or even the matches canceled. Or the matches canceled. Any of those things, none of that was ever said on court. No. There are a lot of different questions as to why that happened, if it was intentional, if it was unintentional. It's unclear, I think. But it was actually, in the big scheme of things, incredibly smart. Because at the end of the day, um, after Lisicki and Yankovic finished their match, Serena came on court to address the crowd. And, um, you know, you never got a video clip and you never got a sound clip of... Her pulling out. Of her pulling out. Yeah, let's let's let you listen to how it sounded with her and tournament MC Andrew Krasny. Another round of applause for this young lady who we love very much. Serena Williams suffered an injury a couple days ago. And I'm going to ask you a question in a second, Serena. But uh, the triumphant, the courageous return of you the other night, I want to first say... Welcome home. You belong here. We love you. And welcome back to Indian Wells. I'm going to embarrass you that a few hours ago, when I heard that you were on your way to have another MRI done on your knee, and you said to the driver to turn around and come back here so you can come back here and talk to your fans tonight and tell them what's going on. And I envy that courage. And we love you, Serena. So talk to us and tell us what's going on. Uh, yes, uh, a couple of days ago in my practice, I just really injured my knee and I fought through it and I kept playing and um, today I, I just could, was struggling just to just to even walk and it was it was really sad because um, you know I, I really just felt four months ago I decided to start this journey and come back here at a place that I've had so much success and um, it's been a wonderful journey and I have to say that I'm so excited to have been able to come out here and, and to start to build so many wonderful new memories and I can only promise to come back next year and play right here on this court in front of you guys and it will be my pleasure, so thank you so much. Serena, on behalf of everybody here at Indian Wells, we wish you a speedy recovery. We love you. This is always home. And please know that there's an invitation for you. Ladies and gentlemen, the number one player in the world, Serena Williams. Yeah, this was brilliant from Krasny, especially handled this incredibly well. He had talked to Serena. I wrote a story about how this sort of all went down for the Times. And he had talked to Serena before, who was incredibly nervous about going out there and doing this, given everything that had was going on with her return there to Indian Wells. And he just sort of showered her with praise. It was all pretty unscripted. And, and he, he told me that she came out faster than he thought sh she was going to. And so it just sort of rushed things. And <laughs> for whatever reason, they never got to the point where, oh, the match has been canceled. Oh, Serena's pulling out. Oh, she's no longer playing. It was just all effusive praise. And they sort of 
love bombed her and then she snuck out <laughs> essentially yeah, and, and it, it was it was all couldn't have gone much better from a serena damage control point of view yeah exactly and i think that a, a huge amount of that credit should go to andrew krasny and and he is a person i mean we know andrew we i don't say i don't think we know him well but if you follow tennis if you're at tennis tournaments a lot he is kind of the voice of tennis and particularly within north america he's constantly the mc that's that's on court announcing the players as they come on reading you know their cvs and all that sort of stuff yeah. and i think that in what Maywell's he, miami cincinnati yeah. charleston yeah and what i think that andrew did incredibly well with serena was first of all when she walked out he kind of put his hand over her on her shoulder and really in the way that he introduced her kind of reminded the crowd like you know we love serena you guys like let's not you know like she's awesome she's a an incredible champion, you know, we're so happy she's returned, all these sorts of things and all that sort of praise that really inoculated any sort of negative uh, or any knee-jerk response that a crowd is going to have because we have seen this before, not just with Serena and Venus back in 2001, but when matches do get canceled. Um, you know, we saw that earlier this week when Bernard Tomic, uh, or earlier last week, when Bernard Tomic withdrew before his quarterfinal with Novak Djokovic, and that match was canceled, and uh, which was a night session match, and so there was a little bit of a rejiggering of the schedule. The, the fans were supposed to see Sox Basil versus the Bryans. That match got moved into prime time. Instead, they got Fanini uh Bolelli doubles and there was booing there was far more booing at the announcement of that than there was when when Serena uh pulled out and uh there were some scattered boos that you could hear throughout the stadium they could have been sarcastic they could have been whatever they were you're gonna always they have were loud but they were isolated yeah they yeah. were isolated and, and and far more drowned out by you know the applause and support that Serena got and I think that in a lot of ways that response um her response when she withdrew was far more meaningful, I would suspect, and this is just speculation, but I would suspect that's far more meaningful than the standing ovation she received when she took the court uh, against Monica Nicolescu, because it's one thing to, you know, get that support when you're doing great things, and it's another thing when you're doing something that may disappoint the crowd, and um, all things said and done, you know, she handled herself well in press uh, also, and uh, yeah, for what was, I know within that 20 minutes of or even 40 minutes because it was announced and JJ and Sabine were playing a third set. So it was still going to be some time before Serena was going to address the withdrawal. Um, there were nerves, I think, definitely in the press room. I, I know I was just like, oh, God, I hope this doesn't go badly. Yeah, no, the tournament handled it well. They didn't want to interrupt the yankovic Lisicki match. I thought it would be unfair to both of those women to do that during a semifinal of the tournament, as unlikely a semifinal as it was. A hotly contested a hot, one. A close one, yeah. And Yankovic said as much after you, when you asked that her. That it might have been distracting. Yeah, yeah that it would sure. have been distracting. And I have to say, like, I was trying to think of it, and I was asking a bunch of writers at the time if anybody ever remembers a, a, a match cancellation or a player withdrawal being announced mid-match, you know, in a match that was coming before. I can't remember yeah. one. Ben doesn't remember one. So I know that there was a lot of kind of chatter, like, why aren't they going to announce it? Like, it should be, you know, mentioned. It's like, look, everybody's got smartphones now. Most people. Yeah, most people. If you're on Twitter, maybe not all the people at Indian Wells because it's a bit of an older set at times, but people knew. And then also the tournament, the tournament was planning all this. They had they sent a push notification about Serena withdrawing through their app. They oh, were did they? Me. Yeah, okay. late, at the, like right at the very end of the Lissiki, uh loss. And so... People not everyone had the app, obviously, but that was another way to tell people before Serena actually came on court in a more sort of official, direct 
way. Um, but yeah, I mean, withdrawals happen. Obviously, Serena's not to be, bl- she shouldn't be embarrassed having to withdraw. She clearly was having knee problems from what everyone said. It's just disappointing when you're at tournament. I remember my dad what got tickets. He was out in Cincinnati one year when I was there, and he got tickets to a Ivanovich Kleister semifinal mm. that was happening there, and Ivanovich retired after three games. Oh, I and that. it was just like, uh, yeah. if you bought tickets for a one singles match session, which it was, and you see three games, and you're like, well, that's not yeah, great. Yeah, and, and we've talked that about happens. this before on the podcast, that it just makes, it's one of those things that makes tennis so difficult to market. I mean, in what other sport do you not know who you're going to see until 24 hours before? Yeah. And yet you're being asked to buy tickets months in advance for certain sessions and things like that. And then on top of that, you know, a football game is going to happen. Regardless of what happens, you may not see Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or, you know, Colin Kaepernick. But you're, you're going to see the teams. You're going to see the teams and you're going to see a game. You're going to get your three hours worth. And tennis doesn't necessarily have that. Um, and this was a, a bit of a reminder of it. But... It was interesting. I, I don't know. Just generally, Ben, like moving on, and we look back on Serena's, t- you know, week. I guess at Indian Wells. What is your big takeaway? What's your reaction to it? And and what are your thoughts on it? I think it went as well as it could have. Really, I think, like you said, I think the way it ended was just something more affirming for her, hopefully, than just winning a title and getting that easy sort of love. In fact, they, the crowd, pretty much stood by her during a tough situation. It's great. And she was clearly nervous throughout the whole week. I mean, it was a different sort of pressure. You saw in the press conference before the tournament, she was very much poised, very clearly prepared and, you know, game face and diplomatic and everything. And then right after she withdrew, she reverted back into, I mean, we've seen Serena impress a lot. We've seen all sorts of sides of Serena at this point in the years of doing it. She shows us a lot of different sides. Um, and then she a lot sort of different of, looks. She reverted back to that sort of very damage control diplomat thing after the withdrawal and so clearly this wasn't easy for her clearly this was a week where she was very tight and clenched and everything was just not easy for her and it showed sometimes on court too um but overall that like we said before she didn't need to come back but the comeback i think went as smoothly as it really possibly could have yeah we were kind of post-gaming it a little bit in the car yesterday during our lengthy drive from Indian Wells up the Pacific Coast Highway and back to Northern California. But one thing that I thought was really, really interesting and and one angle to kind of look at things if you want to is, you know, Serena returns, obviously incredible hoopla. She's bigger than the tournament. At this point, we know this. She's bigger than the sport. I mean, she just made the cover of Vogue um, in a a great photo shoot. You know, she's she's massive. and, And that's really shown kind of Serena's progression in her place in not just tennis, but in society since 2001, when maybe people didn't really know what exactly Serena was back in 2001. Yeah. One slam champion, hadn't been number one yet. Since then, has won Still in Venus's shadow. Yeah, still in Venus's shadow, exactly. Has now won 18 majors uh, since then to, for a total of 19. Um, but what was interesting and almost kind of what I liked about the withdrawal, not that it was an intentional withdrawal or anything like that, but when, you, when Serena spoke about the withdrawal afterwards to reporters, it was a lot of discussion of, you know, I need to take care of my body. There's tournaments coming up. Miami's next week. You know, I have to be fit for the slams as well. I've played through injury. I need to be a little bit more disciplined in how I kind of make decisions with respect to my body and my health. And so what I liked about it, though, is that it really did set up this interesting angle that, okay, Serena Williams returns, massive hoopla, but she pulls out. Why does she pull out? Because at the end of the day, Indian Wells, the BNP Paribas Open, is just another tournament on the calendar that there are other tournaments that are just as important to her, if not more important to her, maybe Miami compared to Indian Wells, where she's a seven-time champion 
in Miami, two-time defending champion going in this this year. She's got she's chasing records. She's three away from tying Steffi Graf. She's could easily win the French. She could easily win Wimbledon. She could easily win the U.S. Open. She's got to be fit to do it. And so at the end of the day, when she pulls out, it is a little. There was a little bit of a message of, and a reminder, which I think is an important one, that as much as we hype not we, but like people talk about the BMP Paribas Open as being like the fifth major and this massive tournament and Serena's return obviously emphasized that and uh, really showed, showed a spotlight on the tournament and really elevated it in a lot of ways. It's just another premier mandatory and it doesn't matter more than any other, uh, other premier mandatory and it definitely doesn't matter more than a slam title. And um, I don't know, her withdrawal kind of hammered that home, I thought, which was... An interesting, I don't think, again, I don't think it was intentional, the withdrawal, but it was an interesting kind of message that you could read into it. And it put the tournament in its place a bit. A little bit. So there we go. That, is, that was Serena's run. The women's tournament did go on. Simona Halep got a walkover. She beat Elena Yankovic in the final. A very choky final from Yankovic, it has to be said. She was up a set in 3-1 and then totally lost the ability to serve. Uh, got broken after holding five straight times. Got broken eight of the next nine service games. And Halep dug deep and came back, and biggest Halep title of Halep's career uh, didn't beat anybody really huge along the way, has to be said. But uh, another nice step toward the upper top spot for Simona if she's on her way there in terms of winning slams, in terms of really being an absolutely, I don't want to say elite, like people say about quarterbacks, that's stupid, but you know, in terms of being one of the very few indisputable best players, Simona. That's another nice notch in her belt. Yeah, and Simona Hallett played her C level pretty yeah. much throughout the entire tournament. Never really was able to unlock, had to battle. Most of her matches went, I think all except for one, went the full three sets. And so she really had to fight. And, and you know, that quote that she gave before the tournament, to, you know, citing the really um, effortless, <laughs> in a lot of ways, loss to Academy Makarova at the Australian Open, I think... She put her money where her mouth was. She said, I'm never going to have, that's the last match I don't fight in. And against Yankovic, she looked completely down and out, had no range, couldn't hold her serve at all against Yankovic. Yankovic, for a set and a half, just was playing peak Yelena Yankovic tennis. I mean, it was really nice to see, at least from Yelena. Um, But she found a way, and she fought back. And I think that it's interesting in a lot of Yelena Yankovic's um, post-match press conference comments that it almost sounded like Halep was in her head a little bit that she knew even though she was up 3-1 even though she was serving for the match that this thing wasn't over and that Halep could easily come back and once she did let Halep break very easily when she was serving for the match Halep really seemed to wrest control of the match back and um, so that's a huge credit to Simona Halep and again you know Ben and I talk a lot about objective and subjective truths and it doesn't you know for I think Simona Halep I don't think it matters to her that she didn't really beat anybody to get to win this title but I in it, it you know, to her, she said it after after the win, you know, this gives me a little bit more confidence that I can win a major, not because I'm like that good, but be, but because I didn't play that good and I won the biggest title of my career. And that's what the big confidence booster is yeah. for so many players. We've heard just about anybody who's done that say that. It feels better to win a tournament, ironically, I guess, when you're not playing your best. When you do, it really says, hey, you know, I don't, anyone, I think everyone thinks 
on my best day, I can... I'm super good. I'm super great, and I can beat not anyone. And I mean, I don't think Misaki Doi on her best day can beat Serena. Sorry, Misaki, after all you've Man. done for us. But... This love affair is over. I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> it's a complicated relationship we have. But it's something that just inspires confidence. And so Simona got that, and we'll see how she takes it into the clay. And the rest of the... Yeah, just big stuff coming up for her there, defending a final in Madrid and... Final in Roland Garros, her first time really doing anything but, like that. Yeah, but what's so kind of impressive from Halep, if you look at the last, you know, two, two, three years, is that every time she has these big spurts, right, and she she surges up the rankings and she wins her whatever five, six titles that one year, and then last year obviously French Open finalist, Wimbledon semifinalist, finishes or I mean gets to a career high number two, et cetera, et cetera. You think, okay, the next year, somebody's got to give, right? Like she she can't as as for a player who can't deal with pressure very well. She's going to feel it, right? And here she is, first player to three titles um, before April, before the clay even comes around, winning Shenzhen, uh, Dubai, and then now Indian Wells. She's racked up those points and given her, taken a little bit of pressure off herself for the clay court season um, and even the grass court season. So that's massive, I think, for Simona Halep. Just, I mean, if I'm one of her coaches, that's what I tell her when the tour turns to clay, is that just remember, you've, you've really built up some some ranking points padding She's number one now in the road to Singapore. So, yeah, I mean, Simona Halep, tip of the cap, even if you can't lift up a trophy. <laughs> yeah, that trophy is very heavy, as she <laughs> showed. It weighs 38 pounds, and it's awkward. And I just think it's a design flaw to have a, tr- a trophy that people can't lift. Now, people did and it's I mean, slippery. It's not like you can't no, There's grab no handholds on yeah. it. Yeah, and people did show that at some brief points during their ceremonies, uh, Wozniacki and Azarenka did manage to hold it. I'm not sure they did the full lift and hold, but, you know, they were holding it aloft at some point so it's not unholdable but it's just silly anyway let's talk about the men who share the same trophy uh, a lot of the excitement as the tournament was winding down for the men was this prospect of a big four semifinal, which we actually haven't had in a while since the 2012 australian open this could have been the eighth time it would happen i believe and it was coming very very close to happening we were one point away three times three times one point <laughs> away but then milos ronich in the fourth quarterfinal Saved three match points against Rafael Nadal, won it uh, seven six in the seven six twelve ten in the second set tiebreak, and then seven five in the third set breaker. Or sorry, in third set. So yeah, so Ronich interrupted the party. I guess let's talk about that part first, and then we'll get to the final. What what did you make of the big four build up and nostalgia? And it, I think it would was going to be a legitimately exciting big four semifinal for sure. It would have absolutely. I mean. We saw what happened, obviously, with Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic in the semifinals. Novak Djokovic just just ran ramshot over Andy Murray, who still continues, in my opinion, to struggle with his serve since the Australian Open, not getting those easy points, and started slow in, in both of those sets and just gave Novak a toehold, and that's all we yeah. know that Novak needs. So that was a pretty disappointing performance, I think, from Murray. But, you know, the prospect of Rafa Roger given that Rafa's not necessarily at 100% his best level yet. Roger obviously playing fantastic tennis. Yeah. An opportunity to get that win on a slowish hard court um, would have been massive for Roger Federer. And I think it would have been big for the sport to just get that semifinal um, under, you know, played. It's always so, big when they two people play. Exactly. It's just, it's, it's, it's massive. So that was pretty disappointing from just that perspective. Obviously with Milos Raonic, we know, I mean, we've been seeing it and... Um, that he is closing the gap, and he has continued to do it. Even if it's slow at times, it's happening. He's improving 
all the time. And I think that look at the uh, his kind of compatriots in that age group. You have Dimitrov who's stalling out. Yeah, you definitely. know, pretty 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 solidly stalling out in 2015. Hasn't won back to back matches, I believe, since the Australian Open after that massive choke against Andy Murray. Got very lucky to be curious here exactly. in the first week. Um, he doesn't have an easy draw in Miami either. Could play Del Potro in the second round or Pospisil. So, yeah, so there's a lot of questions about Dimitrov. Then you have Nishikori, who's just, I don't know, just, I mean, he's as great as he is and as good as he can be on any given week. He's still not entirely consistent, whereas Raonic is incredibly consistent. He makes his quarterfinals. He gets himself into positions to play these top guys all the time. And as any of the top guys will tell you, that matters. Like, you need to be able to play against that level of competition in order to realize those things that you need to elevate in your game. And if you're not playing against the top guys, the big four, big three, then you don't really know. And Andy Murray has said the same thing. He said it in Australia, that he needs to play the big guys more now coming off of injury. And, you know, he does sense that there are things that he needs to improve, but he's got to play against them to see that. Because Murray hasn't had a win over one of the other big four guys since winning Wimbledon since his back surgery. Yeah. So, been a while. So it has been a while. So, it you know, that's difficult. So, but Raonic, you know, we saw it. He beat Federer last fall on a quick hard court in, in Paris. Federer didn't play his best, obviously. You know, always have to asterisk Paris a little bit because of the World Tour Finals coming immediately afterwards. But still, for my money, played just a really relevatory match in the, the Brisbane final against Federer. Uh, I just thought that he played so well and, and really aggressively hitting big, things like that. And then again, here against Nadal, you have to give the kid credit. Three match points he had, he was down, and he just stepped up and fired bombs. And uh, really the one that, that I think Nadal will regret is that second serve return that he just put softly into the net. That was not great. That was terrible. And I do think it's funny because like when you ask the players, they'll be like, oh, you know, when you try to distill a match turning point off one shot or one point, they're like, no, it's made up of a bunch of shots. You know, you can't do that, which is fair. But it should be said that both Rafa and Raonic mentioned that point specifically. Yeah, but it's a match point. It's, it's, it's yeah, different. and Raonic was like, he probably gifted me that. Yeah, you know, so it's it's a thing. But um, yeah, very very nice performance from Raonic to to get that win, first win over Rafa. It's interesting. Raonic doesn't. See, I mean, there's a big Canadian contingent in Indian Wells. Always a lot of snowbirds come down, so that's always been a thing for possibly still doubles. Even they get a lot of support from Canadians and flags. And Jeannie's gotten a lot of support during her matches there. During the draw, even, you'll see, like, big cheers when Pospisil gets placed on the board, which just doesn't happen anywhere. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so the support for him was big. I do think it's interesting for Ronich because Ronich plays this style of tennis that takes everybody else out of their game. And with the exception of Federer, who really was able to hit through it and still kind of play his own game for the most part in his semifinal, Rafa was totally playing on Milos's terms. And so that's impressive for Milos to do that, even if people don't always like watching his particular style of throwback Sampras type service dominated tennis. So uh, he's moving forward and the tennis that brings with it is not something we're really used to in this generation. It takes some getting used to. What we are used to though is Federer and Djokovic playing each other in a final here, second year in a row. Uh, they played each other a lot. Uh, Federer obviously, we should say, easily beat Ronich pretty much, uh, or e- more easily than the score would indicate five and four, but it felt pretty straightforward at the same time. What did you make of this match, which was really very similar to the one the Latin had last year, where Djokovic was in control, really let Roger back in it. This one much more spectacularly. Yeah. Three double faults in the tie break, including when he was up 5-4 in the tie break with the match on his racket to throw two double faults in a row back-to-back. That is just on paper one of the all-time choke jobs. He recovered 
magnificently in the end after some handshaking anger uh Novak Djokovic prevails but I do think this is by far the most entertaining matchup in tennis at the top bar none yeah and and we get it regularly yeah these days which is helpful you know I mean I think that you know nothing like nothing will ever replace Rafa versus Roger I think that's just a different beast in its own way but just right now at you know at this point with Novak being in his peak and Roger not really being all that far off of him um, you know, their matches turn on very, very minute details. And I think that for Roger, you know, solving Novak on a slow hard court is, is, is tough. You know, when it's a quick one, like Dubai, like he, you know, he's won twice there over Novak. And then yeah. here Novak flips it a few weeks later, winning in three sets, um, on a slower one. So, you know, it's, it's, it's it, enough can't be said about how well Novak Djokovic is playing these days. Um, he just looks, you know, unbeatable in a lot of ways. And um, you get the sense that even though he is, you know, maybe not seen as like as offensive and aggressive as um, Roger Federer, that when he takes the court, the match is on his racket. It depends on how well he plays. And if he plays well, you're toast and it's just not going to happen. And, um, you know, it would have been, I think, looking back on it, it would have been very interesting to see the Novak Isner quarterfinal in the daytime on a hot day. I think that Isner played actually a really great match. He did play really well. I thought that it being played at night obviously didn't help him. And those little, little things can make a, a, a really big difference, especially when you're, you're talking about a big Isner serve that's going to fly through the air a little bit more during the day. Uh, Novak's going to see the ball a little bit better at night, I think, than during the day. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit different there, but, um, He's just playing so good, and I think that if you go back to the discussion about Novak Djokovic before he won Wimbledon last year, the big discussion surrounding him was mental frailty, was the fact that like he would get himself into winning positions against players and then just you know wobble and not really recover, let, let players get back in. And obviously we saw in this final, it's not like that's completely not a thing anymore. Yeah. I mean, we saw it in Australia as well. I mean, in terms of like all of the physical issues that he was going through against Murray and looked like Murray was really in a position that he might run away with that final. And what was so impressive was, yeah, Ben was mentioning ESPN caught Djokovic after that tie break, taking a sip of water and his hand trembling in rage. And I was surprised that Novak did kind of uh, acknowledge that that was the reason why it was. He was like so pissed. All the yeah. frustration, all the emotion, he was like literally trembling. And he got lucky early when he got broken back for two one. Um, he sort of pegged the ball to the side. You can I don't think they showed it on TV. At least a lot of places cut to commercial before it happened. Um, but he pegged the ball that could have easily like taken out a photographer. He hit it hard to the side, so he got lucky, sort of like Pekovic did back in the Middle East when she threw a racket that didn't hit anybody because he might have gotten defaulted there. It got wedged under like the the sponsor. Boards. boards there and stuck right flat and so but he was clear and he broke a racket he yeah. was angry and it's understandable i mean he and also we should mention the big part of this as he didn't really acknowledge what everyone could tell is that the crowd was like 99 percent loudly for federer and cheering everything federer does and going back to world tour finals it's been a running theme with Djokovic. he doesn't get the crowd support despite his accomplishments despite his ranking maybe because of them he was never an underdog so he and that he used and to be an underdog. He used to be okay, but he hasn't been for quite a while yes. now. And certainly, yeah. So he doesn't get it the way Federer does. And in this match, it was really striking when Federer started to come back. The crowd gave him a standing ovation when he held for five four in the second. Yeah, and, I mean that might yeah. have been one of the loudest Indian Wells crowds I've ever heard. Is when Federer did close it out, take it into a third set. Just the absolute roar of the crowd was 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 deafening. It was impressive and. 
Um, but what was so impressive about Novak, getting back to him, and obviously trembling in rage, so mad, breaking a racket after he broke to go up 2-love and then got immediately broken back to 2-1, is he got it back. And and that getting it back is the thing that had been missing from Djokovic but until Wimbledon. So that's the thing that is that was really impressive to me, was that he was able to be like shaking in anger and frustration and still be able to calm himself down and outplay Roger through the stretch. And that being said, Roger threw in a really poor game after getting that break to 2-1, just like not a couple games later, just really giving it right back, just playing a really loose service game. But that's the pressure that Novak continued to put on him. And if Novak had let the emotion get to him, he would have, I mean, Federer could have rolled through that third set and he didn't. So that's the new Novak. He says he's human. I'm not convinced. <laughs> but yeah, he, he just looks really, really unbeatable these days. So, I mean, Novak, someone was saying, I mean, I do think Novak is definitely in contention for the French very much right now. We'll see how he transitions to play. But their current, current betting odds is even with Nadal to win the French, mm. which is not something many people have been able to claim they've been even with Nadal to win the French at any point. I don't obviously don't follow these things closely. I just, someone showed me that and it was true. So... We'll see how it goes. This would definitely seem to be like the stars at this early point, two months out, are aligning well for Novak to do that and to capture the one big missing thing he has in his career. One of the less bright, shiny moments for tennis this week came mid-second week when Wayne Desnick was announced to have been suspended by the International Tennis Federation and USADA, U.S. Anti-Doping, for 15 years, which is an odd number of years. It's surprising it's not, not a lifetime ban, although effectively is one for his in terms of playing career. Failing more drug tests for various different substances, peptides and anabolic steroid type things. Uh, Odesnik, for his part, retired, announced he was retiring and said it was from a tainted supplement. This is not surprising to anyone as far as doping stories go because Wayne Odesnik had been arrested back in 2010 for transporting eight vials of HGH through the Brisbane airport. From what I heard, it was something random. I was talking to people in Australia, enforcement about this. He was just apparently looking nervous in a customs line and didn't declare anything. And so they searched his bags and found the stuff and found out he was a tennis player and called it in, and that was that. Odesnik has obviously been one of the least popular players in tennis. He's been really a pariah since then, among other players. And so this surprised no one, uh, according to what were your thoughts on the news, I guess, and then the, how the players reacted to it as the week went on and they were asked about it. And I guess Andy Murray came out and reacted to it on his own on Twitter before anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that anytime somebody gets busted again, like, you're kind of surprised. Because you're, you know, just human nature. It's like, really, dude? Like, for what? Like, what was his ranking at the, the when this is? I mean, he's down. He's 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 fighting in the challenger circuit. It's like the, he was in Australia up and qualifying. Um, I forget exactly what his ranking is now, but it's not good. It's not great. And and, and yeah, I think that that was my reaction. I think I probably saw it and was like, geez, Louise again. Come on. Yeah. Like that's just dumb on every single level. Because he was getting tested so much. Yeah. He was getting clearly targeted testing. There have been other evidence since this last ban. He showed up in the roles of the Biogenesis Clinic in Miami, where a lot of Major League Baseball players, most notably, had been uh, caught. Um, Alex Rodriguez, Ryan Braun, where their names were in there, and they got suspensions for that. A lot of people were thinking that Odesnik probably should get banned just off the strength of that, but the tennis investigative bodies, for whatever reason, didn't weren't able to prove that or didn't get enough to convict him on that, and so they tested him relentlessly over 10 times a year, 
which is way more than anybody in his stratus of the rankings ever got. And eventually he came on positive twice. Yeah. And it's it's pretty bold. I mean, but that's really what Wayne Odesnik has kind of been known for since getting tagged with uh, that HGH uh, importing uh, a few years ago. I mean, I, he comes back, he serves his ban. He links up with Guillermo Cañas um, to be his coach. Cañas, who himself was issued a doping ban, uh, doping ban for a violation when he was a player. And uh, it's kind of like, really, dude, you're going to, of all the coaches in the world and all the coaches in the land, you're going to go with that? You know, it, it just seemed like he was kind of living his career with as a big middle finger to everyone else. And yeah, um, yeah and he wasn't obviously well regarded within at least the American tennis community, especially the guys. Andy Roddick has never uh, shied away from, from, from ragging on Odesnik. Yeah, he didn't but... shy away this time either, saying that he thought he was a douchebag. And that he's embarrassed that that Odesnik cheated with the American flag next to his name. Um, Odesnik originally from South Africa, so that's maybe a little bit shot at that, from, yeah. yeah, from Roddick. Um, and then Andy Murray, you know, who has always been very vocal about his stance with respect to to doping, um, was the first player and really one of the only players to take to social media and lash not lash out but tweet his thoughts, which were very simple, you know, good riddance. You know, bye bye Wayne, good riddance, and um, and he remained just as strident and adamant uh, when he was asked about it after um, after the announcement, and uh, he was the most vocal of all the players. And I think that some of that goes to the fact that like not a lot of them knew Odesnik. Like you asked Rafa when we asked Rafa about it, Rafa hadn't even heard the news yet, um, and it, that day, so he and he didn't really know Wayne. Uh, Federer kind of said the same thing. I don't really know this guy, but cheaters should. You know, and both of them said, like, cheaters shouldn't be in part of our sport, but I don't know anything about it. Um, you're the one that asked Djokovic uh, yeah. about it because they had practiced, Odesnik and Djokovic had practiced in Miami a couple years ago, last year, a couple years ago. Last year before because uh, Djokovic was looking for a lefty to practice with, as the story goes, um, before the final against Nadal. And so Odesnik was around in South Florida, and he practiced with him. And so it was interesting with Djokovic. We, I didn't get to ask him about it until a few days, like days later, because he went into mix zone after for press after his match against Isner. Um, so that was the day it happened, the, the news broke, rather. Um, and then the match against Tomic got canceled, so he didn't do press that day. And so it took a while to ask Djokovic, but finally did. The win of Desmond a few days ago, I know you two had practiced together, I think, before Miami final last week. I wonder what your... Yes, we did. Well, I was so surprised that uh, this happened, and um, I, I don't know him too well uh, from the several occasions that we practiced with each other and we talked on the tour. He seemed like a nice guy. Uh, it's a very sensitive subject for me to talk about it. Obviously, I we, there is no room in the tennis for for people who are trying to cheat, who are trying to use forbidden substances and so forth. So uh, he already was banned one time before. And to come back and do it again, it's really, I, I think, uh, immature mistake uh, from his side or his team or whoever made that move, uh, you know, if that's true. I don't know, I cannot judge him if uh, maybe he has an appeal or not. But again, it's just, uh, of course, I'm, I, I will stand always on the side of, <coughs> of um, you know, protecting the integrity of the sport and and hoping that uh, that we're gonna have a clean and fair, um, you know, colleagues that um, 
and the system that will 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 check everybody equally. And uh, so, you know, I think tennis, in terms of uh, in terms of doping, is is one of the best sports around. You know, there are not many scandals, so that's that's something that is definitely sending a good message out there. <clears throat> With Odesnik, it's interesting, like you said, the sort of recidivism of it is fascinating because if you know you're going to get caught, like why are you still trying to do this? And you mentioned like the, being the pariah. He really seemed to embrace it in this way. Like I remember watching it as like pre first getting caught and he was a totally likable player. He had a, he was a the American clay court guy. He was like always best on clay. He was a total anomaly. Made the third round of the French once playing really well. Then he took a set off Djokovic actually in the third round of the French that year. I want to say, or at least played him tough. And then, yeah, once he got banned, he became this like, super villain who was like awful to ball kids awful to officials whining all the time just like really just angry at the world and Roy rage. Had, had very yeah Roy, i'm sure if you want to call it Roy rage sure um had very few didn't care what anybody thought like legitimately when people said i don't care people think like oh does it really seem not to and it's that's when it becomes sociopathic when it's just you should care what people think on some level and his commitment to breaking the rules assuming he did this time obviously which everyone thinks he did yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, now, I do also think it's un, not great for tennis to have it seem like he's the token doper. Exactly. I don't think that anybody thinks that Winner Desnick is the only person in tennis trying to bend the rules or trying to push the boundary of what's legal and what's not, to be, put it very uh, conservatively. But he becomes the mascot for it with his repeat, yeah. repeated thing, and he's this easy to villainize, <laughs> really unlikable guy who's toiling away in the irrelevant parts of the rankings being nasty to everybody and so he's a very easy person to make a scapegoat um but i don't think that him getting caught again at, with incredible incredible scrutiny on him through all the testing should make anybody feel like oh it's just the outliers it's just right. a desnick again and that's the thing i mean we saw this you know in our initial discussions a few weeks ago about match fixing and some of the things that are going down on down in the challenger circuit that you know, it's very easy to for people to just dismiss, oh, that's just stuff that happens in the challengers. Yeah. And so we're just, or like in the futures. And so whatever. Or, oh, all, you know, these players who are getting tagged with positive doping tests, they're just low-ranked players, so we don't have to worry about it. And, you know, that only concerns me not because, like, you know, there's rampant information that it's happening at the high levels of the game or anything like that, but we shouldn't be <laughs> content and think that, like, oh, yeah, the system works. You know, we're not sure the system works. I mean, even with Odesnik, that was not ITF testing that caught him. Those two samples that came back, my understanding is that's like from U.S. anti-doping or, you know, a separate entity or, you know, but it wasn't because the ITF tested him at a thing and like it came back. What I basically understood from that is that USADA tested him regularly, finally got a positive, And then I think there was a follow-up test given later in a January. A sample or something. Or a second test, second date test given by... I think Australian authorities, and when he was down there in January. So yeah, but anyway, clearly the scrutiny on him is not what it is on everybody else. Um, and there is suspicion. I mean, after this, you know, people have conversations. Well, like, Ooh, okay, it brings up the topic again. Like, who do you think is doping? Well, is this guy doping? Is this top player doping? Is this one? I don't know. Maybe you know, no one can say for sure. We don't know. Yeah. And that's an unfortunate cloud over tennis, but it's one that you can't deny. I mean, the absence of positives doesn't prove a negative. Right. Precisely so. right, and, and especially when you see everything that happened with Lance Armstrong, with all the how he never publicly failed the test that was revealed, uh, the data and information has come different ways, and so far we don't know, and we'll never, yeah. we won't, maybe we'll never know. Right, but I think that like it's it makes me nervous when I see fans or other or 
you know, other reporters or players even, or tour officials, et cetera, et cetera, kind of relax the shoulders a little bit, you know, like, oh, see, like the system's working. We, we got a Desnick or we got this player, like whatever, and things like that. And they, those um, quote unquote success stories are held up as proof that the system is perfect. And it's like, no, it means that everyone should be actually more vigilant because it is in the sport. So, you know, everyone should be hypercritical. Everyone should be trying to chase those stories. Everyone should be trying to talk to as many people to kind of figure out what's going on. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of my reaction a few hours later. I was just like, I hope people, I mean, I think that at this point, after everything that we've seen in sports, especially, I mean, you know, whether it's cycling or baseball, um, you know, no one has the, unfortunately, we can't afford to be like earnest about sports anymore. Like you have to be cynical. There has to be a bit of a guard up um, and, and you have to be questioning. And uh, so hopefully Odesnik doesn't like buy, you know, whatever the ITF or like whoever, like some time to like not have to change or not institute even stricter um, rules or increase the budget for testing, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and a lot of it's on the federations as well. Certain federations take doping incredibly seriously. Some federations kind of don't. A lot, of, a lot of that's a resource issue. So if you're coming from the States or if you're in Britain or some of the mar or Australia, some of the larger sports federations, you're probably going to be under more scrutiny than maybe in other uh, smaller, much smaller countries and things like that, which affects obviously tennis because we're an incredibly international sport. But, uh, but yeah, so we'll see. The next thing we're going to see is Miami, which is coming up these next two weeks, starting up right away. It feels like you don't get much break because there only is one day off because they start some of the women's main draw matches on Tuesday, uh, which I don't really get the point of. But they like doing that just, I guess, <laughs> to be able to sell more tickets or jack up ticket prices or something, which is fine. The draw looks very similar to the point where Serena is going to play Nicolescu again in the second round. <laughs> and, then, and then maybe Serena Diaz. Um, assuming Serena Diaz can get by CC Bellis, that'd be very cool if Bellis was able to win that rematch of the U.S. Open. That's and right. then get Serena. That'd be pretty cool. Assuming Serena is healthy and plays, which we don't know at this point with her knee injury. Um, yeah, similar looking draw. Uh, what would you? What are you looking for in, in Miami? Let's start with the women because we have that draw in front of us here. What are you looking for in Miami? Because it's essentially just like a redo yeah. of Indian Wells. I think for me, especially after Indian Wells, because I've been a little, I've been a little hesitant to kind of weigh in on on what the heck is going on with, but what the heck is going on with Eugenie Bouchard? And I think that that going forward, you know, I think that I, I'm looking at her a little bit more. She's got a pretty potentially soft draw into the quarterfinals against Simona Halep, but she has been struggling. I mean, she's only played three tournaments this year, Australian Open, Antwerp, and um, Indian Wells. She did play Hopman Cup to start the year. Um, hasn't played particularly well, hasn't beaten a top 30 player this season. Uh, picked up, you know, there's whispers about an arm injury. Um, there's also the ab injury that she picked up um, in her loss to Serenko last week at Indian Wells. So there's a lot of question marks. And with the clay season coming up and grass season, she's got a lot of points to defend. The scrutiny was is just going to increase. And this is, Jeannie's in a, a position that is the opposite of Halep, where Halep has repeatedly year over year given herself some kind of immediate rankings cushion by doing well-ish in the first third of the season to kind of show that, yes, I'm here. Last year she won Doha, for example. You know, this year she wins three tournaments, Dubai and Indian Wells and Shenzhen. 
So whereas Jeannie has come out, you know, she had semifinals to defend at the Australian Open, wasn't able to do that. Did fairly well, though. Made quarters. Yeah, made quarters. It's not that bad. Um, But then since then has really not done a whole heck of a lot, losing opening round in Antwerp and then Serenko last week in Indian Wells. So I think that that I'm curious to see just kind of right now um, what happens with Bouchard, how well she does. I mean, this is a very makeable – she makes quarterfinals in Miami. I think that's pretty successful. Um, but she could face either Madison Keys or Sloane Stevens, who are slated for a second round match if Stevens Fun. can take care of Wickmeyer. Yeah. And, you know, that little section with Keys, Stevens, Bouchard, the three kind of, it, depending on what your thoughts are on Keys, the burgeoning it girls of yeah. the last three years, um, this year included, that could be really, really interesting. So, and mm-hmm. you got to like, if Sloane plays Miami the way that she played in Indian Wells, you kind of like her getting through there. Although you do have Safarova. Safarova, I was going to mention. mention yeah, exactly. It's number 10. It's yeah, the likely she's a fourth round. So she's the high seed in that section. You mentioned the others, but she is the highest cool. ranked one. So yeah. And Bouchard. Oh, well, I mean, before, other than Bouchard, yeah. obviously. Um, so yeah, so that's the draw pretty much. Uh, Azarenka is unseated here. She's just barely seated in Indy Wells. She's unseated. Plays Yankovic, possibly second round, which is rough for both of them. That's just not not nice after the great week Yankovic had in Indy Wells to come out and possibly have to play a first match against Azarenka. Just brutal. Otherwise, yeah, we'll be interested to see how people hold up. The Venus we're going to see here for the only time in a while. She's playing Soser in the as her as her first seed. Maybe Coco Vandeweghe before that. Not an easy draw because Coco was also seated in Indian Wells and not here. Um, Venus is not playing Charleston at this point, so it's the only time we'll see Venus for quite a while on either end. Yeah, it's it's an interesting draw. It's a bit of a rehash, but it should be interesting to see if anyone recovers or sustains or, or what it, it's hard to know with these two tournaments the conditions are pretty different the vibes of the tournaments are very different the there's a humidity there's generally quicker lower bouncing courts i mean just the adjustment is not always and also and easy. also the off-court stuff i mean it's just it's a very different vibe from indian wells to miami simply because indian wells is fairly more relaxed the players you know kind of get golf carted around um, you know, they have media responsibilities, but not massive sponsor spon- sponsor responsibilities. Um, so they can kind of just do their thing and play their tennis and really focus on tennis because you know, there's not a ton to do in Indian Wells either. Yeah. So there's not a lot of distraction. You, then you flip over to Miami where it's IMG owned event. IMG owned tournaments are very, very, very sponsor driven. Um, they really stress wanting to deliver the players to sweet visits, to sponsor stuff, um, off-site stuff. Hey, swim with the Dolphins, you know, like all these sorts of things. That can take a toll on the players. And obviously it's Miami and there's Ultra, I think, this week. I think it might be spring break as well. There's just a lot going on generally. Um, and all those sorts of things can kind of be distracting, can take away any unnecessary energy. Some players thrive in Indian Wells. Um, and the relaxed atmosphere there. Some players thrive in Miami with its kind of uh, hyper, uh, you know, kind of mini U.S. Open feel, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, the biggest, the, the two main players that I'm looking at are Bouchard and Venus a little bit, Sharapova as well. I was just personally, I, it's not a bad loss to lose to Flavia Panetta, especially how well those two have played each other over the years. But the way that Maria Sharapova lost that final third set was incredibly disappointing, I think. Just in, in just racking unforced errors up and not really kind of locking back in into the match. So I'm curious to see how she progresses through the draw. She's arguably in the lighter section or the lighter half of the draw, the bottom half. But uh, but she has a few potential stoppers, possible fourth rounder against Pushkova. Should yeah. be interesting. Yeah. The so. other one I'm interested in is Wozniacki, who hasn't had a great yeah. 2015 by most metrics. Obviously, won Kuala Lumpur, but didn't beat anybody who was anybody there. Uh, Didn't yeah. beat a top 80 player, I want to say. Yeah, natural. So that doesn't really 
That's the challenger title by all intents and purposes in terms of difficulty. Yeah, she doesn't have the hardest draw in the world here, but it'll be interesting to see if she gets Venus uh, fourth round potentially in a rematch of the Auckland final. We'll see how that goes. And then Radvanska obviously is really sputtering too at this point. So she also doesn't have the toughest draw in the world, but we'll see how they both cope. And Radvanska has done very well in Miami in the past. She's won it. So should be good conditions for her. Although Cornet has given her problems in the past and has a potential fourth round. So that is the women. The men actually doesn't look that similar because, Fe- because Federer is in here. So Djokovic at the top, Nadal is the number two seed. Seemingly would be, again, Djokovic's to lose is the hardcore norm. He did pull off the double last year. Pulling off the Indy Wells-Miami double with what we talked about, the differences between the two yeah. conditions, doing that two years in a row would be super, super incredible. So First time, for, yeah. the last person to do it was Federer in 0506 or 0607, one of those two, but uh, I think 0506. So... It would be quite a feat, and yeah, it's just hard to see him losing to any of these players. The potential third rounders, Gilles Simon, uh, I'm sorry, Gilles Muller, Cuevas or Robredo in the fourth, uh, potential quarter with Ferrer, and then either potentially a Nisha Corey or um, Raonic in, in the semis. So I don't know. I mean, that's not really looking all that, all that, all that no. tough. Uh, we do get the return, though, of Juan Martin Del Potro. As I mentioned before, he opens against Vashik Pospisil. Not an easy first-rounder at all. But the winner there plays Grigor Dimitrov. So if that is Del Potro, that should be quite interesting, especially with the, the South American love. Tough section there. And then Isner possibly third yeah. round. That's a tough draw for everybody who drew into that section. So yeah. Including you, Andre Rublev, wild card. So <laughs> tough, tough for everybody. Um, yeah, that's one other thing about Miami is unique is the random sort of wild cards they give. Mm. Being IMG based, they usually give it to a lot of their younger clients. I mean, it's the first time I ever heard of Garbinia Muguruza back when, she, back when she was Muguruza Blanco. She was in beat Miami. Panetta. Yeah, she beat Panetta and beat Zvonareva, I think. Yeah. Um, or at least played her very top mid the fourth round out of nowhere. I'd never heard of this person. Yeah. And so there's a lot of young names who get the wild cards here. So it should be interesting to see how they all do bottom half of the draw uh again rafa but he with the question marks he doesn't have an easy draw at all uh almagro or sakovsky is not a straightforward set first match uh verdasco he usually handles pretty easily and then golbis if golbis can get any sort of momentum <laughs> don't laugh at ernie um <laughs> if he can make the fourth round he's played rafa tough in the past garcia lopez has beaten him too on hard courts so We'll see. Not an easy section for, again, for Rafa. And then Rafa. If, if he gets the quarters, maybe that Aussie rematch against Burdich. That bizarre, bizarre Aussie quarterfinal where Burdich just steamrolled him. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, Rafael Nadal, much like Maria Sharapova, chasing their first Miami titles. So that's still always kind of a bit of a, a storyline whenever the Miami Open rolls around. And then the other section of the draw, you have Andy Murray. Um, and Stan Wawrinka kind of heading that up, and uh, Wawrinka trying to recover from what was an incredibly disappointing Indian Wells, losing to Robin Hassa. Yeah, um, not great. That was not great, but he could have a tough uh, second round. Uh, his opening opponent could be Tanasi Kokonakis, which uh, I think one more win for Tanasi, and he gets into the top 100. So um, very, very curious. good year for Tanasi. Yeah, very curious to see how he kind of makes himself up on the rankings. I have no idea how he plays on clay, so that's going to be a bit tough potentially for him. But uh, but otherwise, pretty straightforward. Could have a Jack Sox, uh, a Fanini second round, which could be fun. Uh, Query, Anderson. Um, but yeah, I mean, Donald Young could get Andy Murray in the second round. So that could be fun as well. But for the most part, I think one of the things that the Miami Open suffers from coming after Indian Wells is not on the, on the business end of the tournaments. Generally, the business end of, of Miami 
generally tends to be pretty darn good. Quality of play is usually higher in Miami than Indian yes. Wells. The conditions, the, the, the flying ball and slow court generally was not the case in Federer Djokovic, which was great. Um, but generally, it, through the most of the tournament, the quality of play in Indian Wells is actually pretty bad. In terms of just overall matches, you see bad winner unforced error ratios. You just don't see great matches a lot. You see players struggling with it in Miami. Everyone's playing pretty well by Miami. Right. But what I was getting back to is that one of the things that, that Miami does suffer from is the fact that India Wells comes after what is ostensibly a really long break, especially for American fans who aren't paying attention to what's going on in Europe or the Middle East. Um, so those first early rounds of tennis in India Wells, even though they're like kind of soft you know, early round matches because of the buy system and everything. Like you're just excited to see tennis. And so you tune in and it's like fun and you kind of, in a lot of ways, elevate sometimes like, you know, very minor first or second round matches into something more. By the time you get to Miami, you're like, oh, I saw this stuff last week. Like, you know what I mean? So the first week of Miami is kind of, I think, hard to get traction from a viewing perspective, in my opinion. I find it that way anyway. I don't know. Maybe other people don't. But then on the business end, um, Miami really picks up and it, and it becomes really, really fun. But um, yeah, I'd I never get the same excitement about the first week of Miami that I do about the first week of Indian Wells. Totally fair. One other name in this bottom half I'm looking at to sort of watch out for this year is Dominic Team. He's done really not well. He writes his Facebook post about every match and he just lost the first round of the Irving Challenger or something last week and wrote hashtag it's hard to say vamos. <laughs> Which is just tough. That's so really sad. Let's it's been a been a rough year for the team Golbus duo, uh, the Bre- team Bresnik. Uh, well, not Bresnik so, anymore. Right, right. But both of them have had a bad year, so we'll see how they how they shape up. Yeah, and, and also it gets easier to say Bamos. And also in Miami, you have the return not just of Del Potro, you also have the return of Sanga playing his first tournament right. of the season. Monfils is back after skipping Indian Wells. Um, obviously we mentioned Venus before who's back in a draw. So a few names that we haven't seen over the first two weeks, uh, the first two weeks of the North American swing. So it but it's true. And, and having just seen Serena change the dynamic of Miami because it used to be when you see Serena again and now we've seen Serena. So yeah. it, it, that hurts Miami's bid for being, for relevance a little bit in terms of American coverage is that, you know, Serena, we've just seen Serena. Normally. Yeah. We've seen Serena under like very dramatic circumstances too. Like now it's like, oh, it's just the tournament. Yeah. Like, right? Like, when she takes the court against Nicolescu, uh, it's not going to be the same, like... Uh, if, if she takes the court. If, sure. sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be quite the same hoopla that uh, she received in Indian Wells. But hopefully it's just as fun a match, because that match still makes me smile. For sure. And always will. Always. We're going to close up the show with our rant rave corner. As per usual, before we do that, we'd like to thank all of you for listening. Episode 99E. If you'd like to follow along with the show when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can like us on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. If you have a question for an opening uh, upcoming show, you can email it to us at no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And if you want to subscribe to the show, you can do that on whatever podcasting platform you use, including iTunes, where you can leave us reviews, which we like, and all sorts of good stuff. Courtney, I'm going to let you bat lead off. Um, You guys, The X-Files is coming back. Oh, what? I'm going to rave about it. Fox, um, <laughs> the Fox Network has, has asked for, I think, six to ten episodes. Um, and it's original cast with Chris Carter, executive producing, Jillian Anderson coming back, David Duchovny coming back. I am so excited. I, I don't care if it's ten episodes of them just sitting there eating ramen. 
I don't care. I just want to watch them on screen again. I love the chemistry between Dana Scully and Fox Mulder. I'm so interested to see what happens. If it's going to be like mythology episodes, are they going to be standalones? Is it going to be like, like not prequel, but kind of prequel stuff? Is the kid involved? Are they going to make out tons? I'm so excited. So yeah, I'm really excited for the ex- that announcement, which just came out today on uh, Tuesday. I was going to say it must have come out today because we were in the car together for 10 hours yesterday <laughs> and you didn't mention a single word about this. And how does that happen? Exactly. I didn't mention a single word of it. But, but yeah, but then just a general rave, and I'm sure that people who have listened to my raves over the past or even the podcast or follow me on Twitter know how I feel about this, but I just want to underscore it. It is just a golden age of television right now. There's so many good television shows, and I feel so, like, behind um, the ball for as much, like, t- television as I watch, which is a lot because I work from home and I usually have, like, TV going on, you know, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, whatever, um, but, uh, but yeah, there's so much good stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to splinter off into a rave about the Broad City finale, but the Broad City season finale was amazing. I loved it. I love that show. That's great. The Americans slowly getting caught up, you guys. Fantastic. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix. Super, super good. Um, all these things. Great stuff. And, uh, but yeah, X-Files, you guys. There you go. I had no idea we are going to get more X-Files. I can't tell you how excited I am to hear Courtney talk even more about the X-Files. Really, I'm genuinely so excited for this, as you can probably tell by my convincing tone of voice. I don't use that tone of voice when you talk about Eurovision and Melody Festivalen. So, there. So, there you Okay, fine. I, my rant rave is very much smaller scope. I got a, quite a few tweets, weirdly, during Indian Wells. Because I wasn't even out on the grounds that much, so it was confusing. From people who said, oh, I just saw you and didn't want to bother you and say hi, but I wanted to say hi and now feel bad that I didn't. This is a minor thing. But if you ever see me, please say hi. I'm always happy to say hi back and talk briefly and whatever. If I have to go somewhere and I look busy, I will let you know politely, hopefully. Um, But generally, if you see me, come say hi. And we should probably do some sort of like listener thing Somebody did ask us for to do like a tweet up in Charleston, which is kind of the perfect... I event, guess but there's it doesn't not... have as many people. I mean, we'll we'll do we can do something. Yeah. I'm just wondering like where and when would be the best time to do like an NCR Palooza. So if you guys have suggestions on that, we're open to them. We'll sit there. You can throw tomatoes at us. It's fine. We just you know we just we just like to we just like to know who's listening. I don't want anybody to throw anything at me. I'm going to completely disagree with, with that. I'm fine with it. No, just come there and say hi or be or you know we'll you know. Just be chill and tomato-less. No, they can throw tomatoes. I don't, I don't know care. why you got to be so negative with tomatoes. I'm not negative. I'm not negative. Tomatoes. I'm just, I like to feel the pain. Weird. So with that, <laughs> Next week on Rant and Rave, Courtney talks about pain and she's raving about it. Oh, gosh. This <laughs> took a weird turn. Bye, people. <laughs>